in Titus 1, starting at verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Brothers, we're going to have a, couple, a few sessions together with each other and I'm very happy that we have whatever questions and answers we can. I'll try and talk quickly so that we can get through loads of matter, but we're going to actually need to turn up our Bibles lots of times. We're going to clip around the Bible as we look at these different topics, but the verse we're going to keep coming back to, the key verse of the Bible on the subject of leadership, is printed there at the top, you see, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I'm sure that's the key verse. I'm using the ESV, if you've got another translation that somehow makes the thing sound very different so that you think, oh, hang on, there's, a, there's an error there. He hasn't understood the passage. Well, grab me at question time or over morning tea, afternoon tea, lunch. I never miss food. I'll be there. I want to start off, though, on the subject of, of uh, masculinity. And a verse in, don't look it up, a verse in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, by the time you've found it, or most likely read it, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Act like men. Uh, the Greek really says, be manly. Um, as a follower of Roosters, who beat manly last night, I don't mind that really. Be manly. What, what does it mean to be manly? Because it's not a word that's used today except to describe a particular rugby league team or a suburb in the northern parts of Sydney. What does it mean to be manly? What is masculinity? How, how do you understand? There used to be a, a joke, you know, some time ago about real men don't eat quiche until some man came up with the idea of saying, I'm such a real man, I can eat quiche in front of truck drivers. What is the image of a real man? There are so many images of manliness amongst us. Here are some of them. We start off with, and we're going to get some here, the, the bodybuilder man. Uh, here we go. There's, is that the real man? Or oh, look at another bodybuilder, thank you. Or the one I really like. Is that, what is, is that manliness? Is that the art of it? Or, of course, in our day-to-day, -day, we've got the tattoos. Does that make you manly to have your body as the kind of... Can you imagine what that's going to look like when they're my age? Very sad. At least the top one, you can cover it. Well, at my age, you can't cover it very well. <laughs> or our brother, is he really manly? Because there's a whole essay of these. Is he, hit this one, you see. Beards, they make a man a man, don't they? Or next one, or next one. Or next one, uh, or next one. Does that mean that you're manly? 
I hear. Or there's the Al Stewart kind of manliness, or the next one, uh, beard and bald. Uh, here's a sign of manliness. And of course, for many people in our culture, the manliness is the athlete, so we hit another one. Uh, there's a terrific uh, video of him yesterday winning the 200 metres and then being bowled over by a cameraman on one of those. That's one of the funniest scenes. I hope he wasn't injured because I've laughed so much at it. I feel guilty about him being injured, especially to injure one of the greatest athletes of all time just with a stupid camera. Um, or the, the footballer, uh, different kinds of football codes. I particularly like the... the uh, manliness of the man down the bottom left in Wales playing rugby union with hair and beard like that. Wouldn't you like to meet him in a scrum? Well, the man above him, yes, is that true manliness? Of course, being a soldier, is that manly, the next one that we have? Is that the sign of manliness? Or is it power? Uh, the power of the president, for example. Uh, are they manly because they have and do rule the world or is it what lies behind the president, the wealth? That that's, I mean, with Donald Trump, we get both. We get power, we get wealth, and the most ridiculous haircut of any politician in history. You see, for many, it's got to do with the leader. And so there are so many courses on leadership. I checked out in the airport yesterday. I thought, I can't lose on this. I went to the bookshop, you know, recent releases, top picks, and what's there? A book on leadership. There's always a book on leadership in airports. I don't know why in airports, but they always have books on leadership. I think it's people who are business people catching planes with nothing to do and hoping that they might actually come out as a winner at the end of their program. They, they will buy books on leadership, endless books on leadership. And, of course, if you buy a book on leadership, that shows that you're a follower. Glad you're still with me. Stick with it, friends. You see, what is masculinity? Well, when you turn to the Bible, men are compared and contrasted to God, to creatures, to children, and to women. And it's in the comparisons and contrasts that we learn from the Bible what masculinity is about. It's, we are like this, but we are not like that. If you want to study masculinity in the Bible, if you want to study men in the Bible, you have a big problem because the Bible's written to men. You just think the Ten Commandments, for example. You shall not, you shall not uh, covet your neighbour's wife. It doesn't say you shall not covet your neighbour's husband, just your wife. It's all directed to men. The book of Proverbs is about my son. This is how you are to live. It's not my daughter. The book is written to us, to men. Now, sometimes... That's because men and humanity are intermingled. But it's to men that we write. And so therefore, when you come to study men in the Bible, you've got a big problem. Because when you look up your concordance, all the lists of the references, there's no, there's no concordance to men, really. You've got to understand men in relationship. That marks out our understanding as different to the world's understanding. We are fathers. We are brothers. We are husbands. We are sons. We relate to God, we relate to wives, we relate to each other, we relate to our children, to our grandchildren. It's in relationship you will find who we are. See, in relationship to God, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, we are created. 
We're like the creatures. He made us. Oh, I know he made us in, a, in his image. That's the comparison. But look at the contrast first. He made us. We haven't made him. He has made us. He is not there for us. We are here for, for him. He determines our purpose and meaning in life. We don't determine his meaning and purpose in life. If it wasn't for the fact that he made us, we would be an accident. And if we're an accident, that means we're meaningless. But because he made us, we have a meaning. Not our meaning, his meaning. That tells us. So the first kind of contrast is with God. And yet God made us in his image. We are somehow like God in a way that no creature is like God. In what way are we like God that no creature is like? I mean, we do the things that creatures do. We eat, you know, we defecate, we procreate, we, we do what creatures do, we die. What's the difference between us? Well, we are like God in that we are called upon to rule the world, to subdue the world, but we're to do it the way God does. That is by caring for it, by looking after it. And so the image that's given to us in Genesis 2, which we'll look on later this afternoon, is that we're to be the gardeners. Gardeners rule the garden by serving the garden. They take care of it. They look after it. They tender it. They, they nurture it. That is how they rule over it. And God rules by serving. Jesus said the Son of Man does not come to serve, but to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are to be like God, ruling the world by looking after it, by taking responsibility for it. Indeed, a man is different to a child. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul is speaking about love and speaking about the changing nature of life. And he said that when I was a child, I thought like a child, I act like a child. I, but when I was a man, I put away childish things. A man is not a child. And so in chapter 14, verse 20, he says, in, 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 in sin, be children, be infants. But in understanding, be men. In understanding, be mature. Don't be childish. And so many of the troubles of Christian men is that in sin, we are very mature. We know all about it. And in understanding, we are complete babies. Don't ever do any thinking. That's the exact reverse of what is required. True manliness is to put aside childishness and childish ways of thinking and to be adult and not to be stupid. One of the characteristics of young men, for example, is that they haven't got their risk factor screwed into their brains. Uh, we, we know that actually from brain scans now, that the, the male brain doesn't actually settle till it's 25. Sorry, guys, those are under 25. But that's all right, you don't understand it. That's, uh, <laughs> by 25, you actually intuitively know about risk. Under 25, you have to have it explained to you because it's not immediately apparent to you. Now you can see that by the way they drive their cars. You can see that by the way that we can get them to jump out of trenches and charge towards the Germans, not caring. It was daft, wasn't it? They've got machine guns and they're firing at you and they're only 30 metres away. Go on, have a go. I'm sure you can duck the bullets. I saw it in a movie. Somebody did it. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But yet risk 
is something that intuitively comes to the adult mind. There is a childish way of thinking. The Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. That's in the book of Proverbs. But that foolishness that's bound up in the heart of a child, it's even endearing, especially in a little child, isn't it? The little toddler, it's funny that they can think the way they think and you can enjoy it. And Even when they're naughty in some things, you can't help but laugh at them at the same time as pretending to be to be stern but when you see a man like that you shake your head in wonder you know what I did as a young man was dumb but forgivable but if I were to be doing it now that's not only dumb but unforgivable isn't that just stupid that's ridiculous A, a grown man acting like that so to understand true masculinity true manliness it's got to do with being Not like the creatures, not like the child, not assuming that you're God, though like God in the way you take responsibility. But of course the big contrast is with women. The the Philistines, they were taught to fight like men, not to be afraid, not to be... Because fear, fright, is the... is the, the characteristic response of the woman towards the danger, whereas courage is the characteristic of the man towards danger. And so throughout the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Nahum, you'll find that way of criticising men is to say they fought like women, running away in fear, and instead of standing like men as they should. For men have to take responsibility and have to exercise courage. They're the two characteristics that are different between men and women in the Bible. It's got to do with courage. It's got to do with responsibility. Because we take actually responsibility not only for ourselves but for our households. For good, like Joshua, who would say, but for me and my household we will serve the Lord. He wasn't just making a decision for himself. It was his household. We're going to serve the Lord. For a man makes that decision that our our family goes to church. One friend many years ago, she was married to a very lovely Christian bloke, very quiet man. Didn't say much at all, really. She was a great chatterbox, so I did enjoy her company. You never had to worry about what you're going to talk about. Just listen. And... She said that one day, you know, it was a west cold. They'd been married three months. It was a miserable day, howling outside with the weather. And she said on this Sunday, she said, Let, let's skip church today. We'll just have a day in bed and a home. And, and uh, he said, very clearly he said, my family goes to church. That's all he said. And that was it. She got up and went to church. She said to me later, Think I'm going to church from here on in. <laughs> right. He was a man. For me and my household, we go to church. That's what we do. He made the decision in very clear terms. You see, it's never called the sin of Eve. It's always called the sin of Adam. She sinned first, but he was the first to sin. It's not as in Eve we all die. It's as in Adam we all die. Eve was deceived, we're told. Uh, That's true. She claimed that herself in Genesis 3 and it's picked up in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Adam wasn't deceived. He was disobedient. 
He was the one who sinned. And in his sin, we sinned. Because we are him. All of us combined are just the genetic expression of him. We were all there in the garden. We're all just the continuation of Adam. That's who we are. He and his household, that's us. We sin. And so the character of manliness in the Bible, of which this is not the whole talk. I could never talk on manliness, but just to summarise, to know where we're at. The character of manliness is to take responsibility, is to provide, is to protect. And therefore, the characteristic involves courage. Be men. So if you read your NIV translation of 1 Corinthians 16, it says, be men of courage. The word courage is not there in the Greek. The NIV puts it in there because it's trying to help the reader understand what it means to be a man. And it's, it's right. They're, they're, they're right in their translation at that point. You could have said a few more things. You know, be, be men of courage and responsibility. Be providers, be protectors. But that's putting more and more words in that are not in the text. So, but they have to put something in because today to say to people, be men, doesn't mean anything anymore. The reason the, the reason the suburb Manly is called Manly was because Governor Philip went over there and was really impressed by the manly disposition of the indigenous peoples of that area. He went back, he was really impressed by them, he went back later and one of them threw a spear at him and tried to kill him and actually did uh, get him in the shoulder, if I remember correctly, where he got, but uh, uh, did injure him. But Governor Philip refused to... Uh, to punish the man, Willemering his name is, they wouldn't punish him because he saw him as being manly and being doing, in a sense, he was protecting his people, his family, from these strangers. It was a right thing to be doing, even throwing spears at the governor. It's an extraordinary case of uh, Christian heritage and Christian understanding of our nation, isn't it, that you would actually not punish a man who threw a spear at a governor I think there's many a person on that uh, precedent would be considering the possibilities. But we're to be God's man. Now, how can we be God's man? Is there anything distinctive about the man of God? Well, yes, there is. The man of God is the leader of God's people in the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament term. It's an Old Testament term. And it happens very often. Usually the prophet is the man of God. But also the king and the the priest can be. Samuel was a man of God, although he was a prophet as well as a priest. David was a man of God, though he was a prophet as well as a king. But Elijah was the man of God. Moses was the man of God. It's the, the leader, the prophetic leader of the people of Israel are called man of God. But in the New Testament, it does occur twice, this phrase man of God. And in the New Testament, there is one reference where it tells us how to be men. So let me run to those ones. Firstly, how to be men, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's a passage which we know it's talking about men as men because uh, it's contrasted with women in the next verse. But 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. The command here is to pray. The command is not to lift the holy hands. The, the command is to pray. The way you pray is lifting holy hands. But the important part of lifting holy hands is not that they're lifted 
or that they're hands, but that they are holy. That's the important bit. You're to lift holy hands, not unholy hands. Can you imagine what lifting an unholy hand would be like? Yeah, it's violence. It's the fist. That's the unholy hand. And why would praying be put in opposition to lifting the unholy hand? Well, in James chapter 4, you're told, you do not have because you do not ask. Ask and you would receive it, you see. But you, what do you do when you don't ask God for things? You fight, you quarrel. So James chapter 4, what causes quarrels amongst you? What causes fighting amongst you? You want, but you do not have. You do not have because you do not ask. Ask and you will receive. The opposite to prayer is violence. And so when we come, we are to be the men of prayer. Prayer is a masculine activity, which we have terribly neglected, brothers, so that it has become the the feminine activity. You have a prayer meeting, the women turn up. You sit in a group of people and we're going to lead in prayer, we'll have pray. Who prays first? The woman prays first. We run our church congregations and we get different people to read the Bible or to lead the singing or to pray. Who do we get to lead to pray? Nearly always get women to lead to pray. I don't know about your church. If the cap fits, change it. But it's the men's job to pray. A men's prayer meeting is a right prayer meeting because God tells men that he wants us to pray and to pray in harmony with each other, in unity with each other. That's how to be a man of God. Second way to be a man of God is to be holy. Go back to uh, 2 Timothy 6. That can't be right. 1 Timothy 6, it must be. My notes have got to be wrong here. Let me try. Yeah, 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What? We'll go back to verse 10. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness with gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of eternal life. So we've got to do two things. We've got to run away and, and we've got to pursue after. We run away from materialistic Pursuit of money, wealth. Interesting, both these two things I've mentioned so far are put in contrast to the pursuit of money. You do not have because you do not ask. You fight and quarrel because you don't have. Pray. That's what we must be doing. And this one, you see, the love of money is the root of all kind of evil. Because, and it comes out of religion in this passage, if you look back at it, which we won't have time to now, because the prosperity gospel was as old as the New Testament and as heretical as the New Testament said it was then as it is today. There's nothing new under the sun. Evil heresy is evil heresy. To think that godliness is a means to, to, to financial gain is a profound... It's denied right here. It's contradicted right here. It's what men must not be, money chasers. We've got to actually flee away from that kind of thing. Greed is a great trap, isn't it? If you are not greedy, it's very hard for people to con you out of your money. But if you are greedy, it's very easy to con you out of your money. It's very—it's like blackmail. If you never do anything wrong, it's very hard to be blackmailed, isn't it? Whereas if you do things that are shady, 
you fall in the hands of blackmailers. Well, greed, run away from it. But don't run away from everything. No, no, pursue after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight that fight. For we are warriors, but our worrying is not... Our fighting is not the fightings of this world. Our fightings are the fighting of faith. And so the third thing that we are to do is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and the Christ Jesus who has judged the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season. See, the man of God lives by the word of God. He's trained by the word of God and he teaches the word of God. He preaches the word of God. And the very training the word of God gives us is the training that we give to others. So notice how chapter 3, verse 16, it is for Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Look down to chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That which the word of God does to us is what we do to others with the word of God. So, men are to, to be adults. Men are to be the creatures of God, taking responsibility for God's world. Men are to be those who take responsibility for their families, which after morning tea we'll be discussing. Men are to be courageous, brave, providers, protectors, responsible. That is the character of it. And God's man will do it through prayer, 1 Timothy chapter 2, through being holy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and by the word of God, 2 Timothy chapter 3. The three passages which actually address us as men and therefore tell us how to be men of God. I've just given to you. I like the topic because there's only three verses. You've got a topic that's only got three verses. You can say everything the Bible says. It's like art. I like Vermeer. Vermeer is a wonderful artist. There's only 25 existent Vermeers in the world. If you're an expert in Rembrandt, You never know how many there are. You'll spend all your life chasing around. But if you're going to be an expert in one painter, get a painter who only has half a dozen, you see, and then you can know everything there is to know and sound like you know you're a real expert on leadership. The concept is a very big concept in our world today. There's any number of training courses you can go to on leadership. The definition is very hard to work out. What is a leader? Well, is the bloke out the front? Not necessarily. Some of the best leaders always stay in the back rooms. He's somebody. Here's an army definition that I got from a, a, an officer one time. A leader is somebody who can get people to do what they don't want to do. That's not a bad definition. Get people to do what they don't want to do. A leadership's a person who has power. A leadership is a person in authority. Because that's not the same thing, is it? You can be in authority and not have power. And you can have power and no authority. The two are actually slightly different. Authorities can be a rightful exercise of power, but, you know, sometimes authorities don't even have power to exercise rightly. 
There's no single word in the Bible for leadership. It's not a biblical concept. There are words like king, master, ruler, that you would think are connected to leadership because in our world they are connected to leadership, but the Bible doesn't do that. The heart of the concepts that are given to us, though, like king, like prophet, like priest, like master, like ruler, there is one concept the Bible keeps giving to each of the people who hold such office. It's being responsible. That is the key to Christian leadership, being responsible, taking responsibility for others, which is why sometimes the Christian leader will look much more like the Christian slave than the king. It's the person who packs the chairs away, who takes responsibility, not because he's being told to, not because he's being nagged to, not because he's, but because he chose to do it. You exercise biblical leadership by taking responsibility, which is a very masculine thing to do. So come with me to the passage, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, and see how it's being used here, Mark 10. I'm going to move faster if I'm going to get through this material, Mark 10. That little comment was just for myself. Mark 10. Philip, speed up. Can't find Mark 10. That would help. And what's the passage about? <clears throat> Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. It's a very worldly view of leadership. I want to be in the right seats, the seats of power and authority right next to the king. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptised with the baptism with which I am be baptised? Are you going to die for the sins of the world? Are you going to lay down your life for others? Well, classic stupidity. They said to him, oh, we're able. Jesus said, the cup I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptised you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not for mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be ignorant with James and John. Why? Well, because they got in first, that's why. You know, they wanted to say it too, didn't they? And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. So our concept of leadership, ruling, governor's status, importance is going to be fundamentally different because of Jesus. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the verse I've chosen is the key verse for our day today. Verse 45 comes in the very context of leadership. And it is the complete reversal of human expectations about leadership that the world does not understand and therefore will not understand what we're talking about when we talk about roles of husbands and wives or men and women or parents and children or how to run church or what positions people have in church. They will not and cannot understand it because the whole framework of thinking is totally, radically, completely 
different to the world's. But that gives us problems as Christians because we've got to make that shift across. And so in Mark's Gospel, that chapter comes as part of the retraining of the disciples that happens in Mark's Gospel from chapter 8 through to uh, the end of chapter 10, where Jesus is giving his leadership training. In Matthew's Gospel, you'll find it in the Sermon on the Mount, but that's another sermon for another day. Let's look at the Mark passage. You see, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, 827, go back there. Jesus went on his with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him John the Baptist, and uh, some say Elijah, and some say one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter said to him, You are the Christ. You're the king. You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited ruler of the universe. You are the Christ. And he strictly told them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but of the things of man. You are the Christ, the King, the ruler of the universe. Okay, I am, but don't tell anybody about it because I want you to understand I've come into this world to lay down my life. I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be crucified. In three days I'll rise. No, Jesus, that's not right. You're the Christ, you're the king. The king doesn't get killed. That, that's We're going to crown you, we're not going to assassinate you. Yeah, can you imagine poor Prince Charles? He, he's got to wait for his mother to die before he becomes king. But when he gets there, they're going to assassinate him. That's not really something to look forward to, is it? I'm sure he doesn't expect assassination in Westminster Abbey. Uh, some of the security people may. Uh, some people may think with good reason. But he doesn't expect it. That's not what the script is. I become crowned and then I live in the palace and I make the rules and I ponce around with all the kind of clothing that makes me look like a soldier when I've never served it. And that kind of thing, all the medals and brigades, and I, I'm king of everything, aren't I? That's what I'm looking forward to. And that's Peter's mind. You're the Christ, and I'm going to sit right next to you at the banquet. And Jesus says, yes, and it's going to be my funeral. No. Yes. You're thinking like a man, not like God. And then he called the crowd to his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It's not just me, it's you. If you're going to be in my kingdom, laying down your life for other people is the norm. If you're going to be in my kingdom, it's not sitting in, in palaces on thrones. If you're going to be in my kingdom, it's dying on the cross for others. You're going to suffer. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be hated. There's no, you know, you've got a wonderful superannuation scheme here. You know, we're going to give you marvellous beachside holiday houses. We're going to give you wonderful overseas trips. We're going to make you famous in the world. There's none of that. No, no. The recruitment campaign of Jesus is come die with me. I'm coming to my kingly power by death. You want to be in the kingdom? Come and die with me. It's a total reversal of everything anybody has ever thought about in terms of being the king. But it's not just for Jesus. It's for his disciples as well. And so, 
He now shares his missions with them, which all leadership books will tell you you've got to share your vision and your mission with people, and Jesus does, repeatedly. Chapter 9, verse 30. They went from there and passed through Galilee, and he didn't want any of them, anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Oh, what was he teaching them? The Son of Man's going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and then he will... When he is killed after three days, he's rise. But they didn't understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask him. Because what he was saying was so outlandish. It's not outlandish to you and me because we live this side of the cross. But put yourself back that side of the cross. It was absurd. He's teaching them what doesn't make sense, that the way to the kingly power is crucifixion, which is a way of killing people in shame and ignominy. I mean, there's lots of ways of killing people. Crucifixion was not killing. Crucifixion was terrorism. You know, you can kill people without chopping their heads off and videoing, can't you? Crucifixion was chopping their head off and videoing so everybody could see. It was terrorism that the Romans executed people this way. Jesus, I'm going that way. Look across chapter 10, verse 32. 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he'll rise. The teaching of Jesus from there on in is repeating to the disciples the vision of his execution. And he gives more and more detail as he goes. And it's in that context that we read our verse, chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, he does talk of the transfigured glory. He shows some of them his glory back in chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. But even then, even in that context, suffering is there. For as they were coming, chapter 9, verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. And they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, it's John the Baptist, and they did to him whatever they pleased, they executed him, as it is written of him. So even in the transfigured glory of Jesus in his kingly power, talking to Moses and Elijah on the mountain, there was still death. There was still the execution. There was still the cross. There was still the persecution. They didn't understand the meaning of the word resurrection because the resurrection to them meant the judgment at the end of the world. When he said, in three days I'll rise again, it was like saying, I'll go to heaven. Long story, too much to complicate it. I'll answer it in questions if you want to ask me about it. But let me just tell you, that's what it is. That they didn't understand, they didn't hear that. But all the bit they heard was, he's going to die. This vision governed his actions. And he required them to govern their actions. And so in this little section of Mark's Gospel, chapter 8 through to chapter 10, he keeps on doing actions that reveal this same change in values. Once you accept the cross, you never live the same way again. So look at chapter 9, verse 13. 9, verse, sorry, 9.33. 
And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent on the way because they had argued with one another who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, look, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Going across to chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said, no, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive a kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You see, it reverses your values of attitudes towards other people. Because now the little child is important. You lay down your life, you no longer can hold on to it. It's the trouble with living sacrifices. They always want to climb back off the altar. We're the living sacrifice who has to stay on the altar. When you stay on the altar as a living sacrifice, then other people are more important than you are. Little people are more important than you great people. That's the character of it. And so he continually supports the little people. In his, the contrast you see in chapter 10, there's a classic contrast in chapter 10. I take it that we're not here with year seven boys who, and girls who do not know any of the Bible and don't know the big verses and their little, and their chapter numbers, etc. But so let me remind you in chapter 10, he comes across two people. Verse 17 following is the rich young ruler, the man who's got it all wealth, power, position, authority, he's got it all. He's a moral man. You know, you've got to keep the commandments. All these I've kept in my youth, but I haven't got eternal life. What must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, go sell all that you've got, give away to the poor, and come follow me. And he goes away sorrowful because he has so much wealth. But then in chapter 10, you meet the other person in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as... He was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man again, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, go your way, your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You can't have two people more contrasted than the rich young ruler and the blind beggar. (laughs) And the rich young ruler, everybody wants to follow. In fact, when Jesus, he goes away, the disciples are puzzled. And, and they, they say, well, who can be saved? Jesus says, with the rich it's hard to be saved. And they say, well, who can be saved? If the rich can't be saved, what chance have we got? You see how non-Christian their thinking is? <laughs> they haven't yet understood Jesus comes to die and if you're going to be a Christian, you must live to die. Jesus comes to serve, you're going to be a Christian, you must serve. And so you get this man they can't understand. 
And then you get another man, the blind beggar, shut up, we haven't got time for you now. Jesus is an important person, don't trouble him. And no, 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 that's the man who is saved. Church. Church is the gathering of God's people. Uh, it's the heavenly gathering of all Christ's people, but it's the earthly gathering to hear God's word. And elders are called upon to be pastors, shepherds. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm just giving the organisers a little panic here, brothers, but don't worry about it. Just let them work out how they're going to reorganise the timing of morning so you at the beginning and the end of it. 1 Peter chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock, pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. You an elder, I, 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 we're talking to different churches with different concepts of what that word elder means, isn't it? But I look at there's enough grey hairs around here and bald heads for me to know I'm talking to elders. You're an elder, you're an older man, as opposed to a younger man who's being referred to there in the next verse or so. You're an elder. It's not that you have a status office role, it has a job. You see, the world thinks status office role. I've been elected as an elder. I'm one of the elders of this church. Well, bully for you. Act like an elder by serving. Because that's the important thing. Pastoring is the important thing to be involved in. And pastoring is tough work, men, because it, you don't pastor a sheep, you pastor a flock. The shepherd who has one sheep is pretty poor, isn't he? And when that one dies, he's got nothing. I, you know, I'm a city slicker, but even I understand you've got to have at least two sheep to be able to have, have a future. <laughs> to have a flock requires you to look after more than one. And you are to actually pastor. It, it says, you know, the, the, the wonderful shepherd song is, is Psalm 23, where Jesus uh, is picked up as that shepherd, that great shepherd. You pastor, according to Revelation 2.27, he pastors with a rod of iron. You see, there's that little verse in it in Psalm 23. His rod and staff comfort me. How does a rod comfort you? You know, his woolly fleece comforts me. You know, his gentle arms comfort me. But a rod comforts me. It's a stupid translation. The word comfort in uh, the time of the King James Version, when that was translated and brought into English, meant encouraged, pushed along. What you do with a rod is you shove it in the side of the sheep. You hoik it around this way and that way. That's the, the role of the shepherd is not to be a counsellor going up beside each sheep and just gently stroking it, reflecting its noises so that it will feel better and more at ease. Counsellors have a place. They're just not pastors. Pastors rule the flock. They send the dog so, you know, that's how we do it anyway, you know. His, his kelpie comforts me. Have you ever seen kelpies comforting sheep? They do. They go around and nip their heels, move them away from where you'll get the fox or the wolf or whatever it else. They comfort the sheep. They encourage, they goad the sheep. They rule the sheep. 
And so the great chapter in Ezekiel 34 on shepherding, in Ezekiel 34, the, the false shepherds in Ezekiel 34 fail to do their job because they do not feed the sheep. They do not care for the weak sheep. They see the sheep scattered and unprotected as they eat the sheep themselves. But the Lord comes and he will search for the lonely and the lost and bring them back into the flock so that the flock will be held. But also in Ezekiel 34, he will, he will judge between the sheep so that he will not let the fat sheep destroy the thin sheep and to trample the, the, the feed under their, under their ground. See, Ezekiel 34, 17, As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. It's not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have... It's not only the false shepherds that Jesus attacks, that God attacks in Ezekiel 34. It's also the bad sheep. Uh, the shepherding task is the task of actually governing the affairs of the church. And that's what the elder's task is, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But the character of that elder is godliness, isn't he? You get it in 1 Timothy 3, you get it in Titus 1. Both the, who do we look to appoint as the elder? Well, the characteristic is their convictions, their character, not their competencies. They've got to be a person of integrity and of faith. They've got to be someone who's not given to wine, who's not given to greed in money, who's faithful in his marriage, who's married only to one woman. And it's a one, the, the phrase is, He's got to be a one-woman man. That's the character of... The only gift he has is the gift of teaching. In 1 Timothy 3, in Titus 1, as was read for us, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It takes leadership and responsibility, brothers, to say, no, look, that's the wrong way. We're not going that way. That's not the Christian way. This is the way we should go. To actually say, no, no, I know you love that kind of music, but these sheep don't like that kind of music and they need to have their music in church as well. If you want to have a split in church, have a discussion on music because right? that's the idol of the 21st century. Uh, many a church would be happy without music, frankly, because there would be more harmony if we didn't try and sing in harmony or percussion. Right? To actually rule by making decisions for the benefit of other people requires you to lay down your own interests in life for their benefit. Be elders. To lay down your life is the character of the Christian leadership. And that's what Jesus trained his disciples in. And that's what you'll see reflected in the teaching of shepherds and pastors and the teaching of elders. But I'm sad to say we keep on turning eldership into seniority, importance and significance like the world thinks. I saw a man converted through the Jehovah's Witnesses some years ago. You don't often see people converted through Jehovah's Witnesses, do you? But he stood at the door and argued with the Jehovah's Witnesses. He was a Greek. 
and he was a lawyer, and he argued with these Jehovah's Witnesses and they persuaded him that the Greek Orthodox Church wasn't right and that the Jesus said, and so he knew they were a cult, so he wouldn't have anything to do with them. So he came and sought me out to find out about the truth because he'd spent months and months travelling around churches in, in our part of Sydney. And he said, I've got this verse. Jesus says, watch out for the hypocrites. They wear long gowns and they have special seats in the synagogue. So I've gone to every church and any church that there's a special seat for the minister or long gowns, I know they're, they're hypocrites. And after three months, he couldn't find a church that didn't give special place to the eldership and leadership of the church. And so he was worried because he knew Jehovah's Witnesses were wrong. And the Orthodox church he came from was all full of special seats and robes and titles and all the rest of it. And so he wanted to know, how can you be a Bible Christian today? That's pretty pathetic, isn't it? Isn't that a sad story? However, uh, I talked to him, I met with him over several years, uh, over a year or more, had a crazy run with him. It was the best follow-up I've done in years. He never once joined our church. Just as well, I had all kinds of titles and uh, special chairs set aside. And it took him a long time to find his way into genuine Christianity because the eldership was not acting as pastors caring for people laying down their lives but were acting the way the world would run a church. So when the church goes to the airport and buys the business management books on leadership in order to work out how to run their affairs, we are in deep trouble, aren't we? Because this is one of the issues in which Jesus specially mentioned we're not to be like the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he laid down his life for us. <laughs> we can't thank you enough for it, Father, because it's just you're all so full of grace and nothing of us. But we thank you that he also gave us the example and taught us how we're to live, that we too would lay down our lives for him and for the gospel, for other people. Father, we are so imbued with sin that we keep forgetting this and think more highly of ourselves than we do of others and view others in the hierarchies of worldliness instead of as people whom we can serve. And Father, we keep on falling back into childish ways of sin instead of mature ways of understanding. And we keep failing, Father, to take responsibility. We want power and authority, Father, but we don't want responsibility and work. Help us, please, Father, change our thinking, change our mind. Help us to so understand the vision of the Lord Jesus, that the teaching he gave to his disciples might be the way of our thinking and understanding and the way of our living and acting. And especially, Father, in church. For as we gather together as Christ's people, please, Father, by your Spirit, work in us to serve one another, 
as Christ would serve. To lay down our lives for each other. And care for each other. And take responsibility for each other. And have the courage and the boldness to teach and to rebuke. To be the men of prayer. Oh, Father, help us. Because of ourselves we could not do this. And would not do this. But of you and your spirit at work in us. The spirit of your son that we might learn to live and to live his way in our church life as we think later of our family and the world. We ask in Jesus' name.